Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with my buddy Ann Kundal from SoxProspects.com in just a little bit. But where I want to start is with the Patriots. And I want to get to this. I have three guys in the Patriots that I'm predicting to have breakout seasons. Okay. So the first guy I'm going to go to is the quarterback, Mac Jones. And the reason I believe Mac Jones is going to have a breakout season is because we've seen in recent NFL history, guys that have had really bad offensive coordinators. And then the next year, they get really good offensive coordinators. They tend to have really, really good seasons. Okay, so there's a lot of evidence of this. And I believe Bill O'Brien is a good offensive coordinator. Recent history and the history of his career would tell you that. So the guy I'm going to start with in terms of evidence of this happening happening recently is Trevor Lawrence. So if you look at Trevor Lawrence, his first year with the Jaguars, he had Urban Meyer and Daryl Bevel, who was the offensive coordinator, just a complete dumpster fire in Jacksonville that year. We all remember how bad that was for Urban Meyer and company. So Lawrence's problem in his rookie year, not just that he was playing for these guys, obviously that was the main problem, but he held on to the football too long. And he threw too many interceptions. So if you go to 2021, 17 interceptions, that was tied for the most in the NFL. The following season, last year, 2022, it was just eight interceptions. So a huge improvement from the quarterback. If you look at his completion percentage in 2021, that was at 59.6%. That was 33rd of 39 qualifiers. Then you look at the completion percentage in 2022, 66.3%. So a huge increase That was 15th in the NFL. Then you look at the rating in 2021, 71.9, which was 36 of 39 qualifiers. The only guys worse than him that season were Zach Wilson and the long neck Mike Lennon. That's it. Those were the only two quarterbacks worse than Trevor Lawrence in terms of passer rating. And then you look at that rating 
in 2022, it's up to 95.2, which is 10th. So he went from 36 in passer rating all the way up to 10th, jumped 26 spots. So just getting Urban Meyer out of the building, naturally that was huge, right? For not just Trevor Lawrence, but everybody in the organization. But the question then becomes, well, how did Trevor Lawrence go from a turnover-prone quarterback to one of the best quarterbacks in the league on a team that went to the playoffs? Because the reality is, by the end of the season, Lawrence was one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Well, what Doug Peterson and company did is they emphasized getting the ball out quickly. So if you look at the numbers on Trevor Lawrence, in 2022, his time to throw was 2.52 seconds. That was the fifth quickest in the entire NFL. If you go to 2021 with Urban Meyer and company, that number was at 2.85. That was 28th. So that's a huge gap, right? We're talking about 23 spots. He went up when it comes to that. And if you look at the numbers when he got rid of the ball in terms of less than 2.5 seconds, in terms of the percentage, 56.4% of the time, he got rid of the ball less than 2.5 seconds in 2022. That was the fourth best rate in the NFL. If you go to 2021, that number was at 42.4%. That was 30th. So he jumped 26 spots in 2022, and he was up 14 percentage points in terms of the usage there, in terms of how often he was getting rid of the ball with less than two and a half seconds. And the results were great for Lawrence in 2022. In terms of those passing attempts, when it's less than two and a half seconds, 17 touchdowns tied for the third most, 2,411 yards, that was the fourth most. And his passer rating was 105.8, which was the seventh best in the NFL. Really good numbers. If you go to 2021, the attempts, the problem there was the attempts north of two and a half seconds was at 57.4%. That was the 10th highest rate in the NFL. So basically, he's holding on to the ball way too long. And those numbers in 2022, in terms of the dropbacks that were more than two and a half seconds, That was down to 43.3% compared to 57.4%. That 43.3%, 38th out of 41. So he was constantly getting rid of the ball quickly in 2022 compared to 2021. He was 28 spots better. And the, the rate is huge, right? In terms of the decrease in terms of the attempts more than two and a half seconds holding on to the football. So they channeled it into him. We got to get rid of the ball quickly. And they schemed it up too. So if you look at those numbers... In 2021, when he was north of two and a half seconds holding on to the football, he was at 13 picks tied for the most. He was at 5.8 yards per attempt, 37th out of 39 qualifiers, and the rating was 56.4, 36 out of 39. So basically what Doug Peterson did and his coaching staff did is they took what he did poorly in 2021 and turned that into what he did well in 2022 by saying, hey, we're actually going to get rid of the ball quickly. We don't want you holding on to the football. And it was a complete difference maker for Trevor Lawrence and that team that went to the playoffs. So this is example one of a good offensive coordinator getting a quarterback who has a ton of talent in Trevor Lawrence and saying, hey, what do you do well? Well, you're a good, quick decision maker. Let's dig into that. We don't want you holding on to the ball in the pocket like Urban Meyer and company had you do And what we saw, great results from Trevor Lawrence in his second year, and he makes the Pro Bowl. Okay, Jared Goff is another guy where, rookie year, a guy by the name of Rod Boris, (laughs) I don't even know who that is, was the offensive coordinator there for the Rams. He's now a tight ends coach in Buffalo. So Goff, that season, atrocious, right? Seven games, the Rams lose all seven, 155.6 yards per game, 63.6 passer rating, 38th of 39 qualifiers. 5.3 yards per attempt, dead last in the NFL. Okay, 
Now, he clearly was not helped by his coaching whatsoever. So in that season, his rookie year, just 14.1% of his dropbacks came via play action. That was 38th out of 39 qualifiers. So essentially, they didn't give him any of the layups. They didn't give him any easy throws. Play action, that's what you do. That helps your quarterback, right? The next year, Sean McVay comes in. 8.0 yards per attempt for Goff, fourth in the NFL, so 34 spots better than the, the previous season. You look at... The rating, 100.5, that was 6, so 33 spots better, and a 36.9 points better just in terms of the actual rating. And here's the big one in terms of where the improvement came from. 29.1% of his dropbacks came out of play action. That was the second highest rate in the entire NFL. So 36 spots better, 15 percentage points better. So he went from second to last in attempts out of play action, or dropbacks out of play action, I should say, to the second most when Sean McVay inherited Jared Goff when he took that Rams head coaching job. So in other words, you get a good offensive coordinator with, in some sense, a limited quarterback in Jared Goff, like he's not super athletic or anything along those lines, despite being the first pick, right? But you look at it with another offensive coordinator and Ben Johnson, it's working out for him too, where the scheme's there. But that's the big thing is Sean McVay said, I need more play action. With Trevor Lawrence, it was Doug Peterson, let's get the ball out quickly. And then we look at what Jared Goff was. It was play action. By the way, speaking of play action, that same season, 2017, Deshaun Watson, 30.3% of his dropbacks came via play action. That was first. Uh, We know who his head coach was, right? Bill O'Brien. Okay, nonetheless. So I continue with this theme. Stafford with McVay. Well, Stafford, if you look at his expected completion percentage in 2021, the year the Rams won the Super Bowl, it was at 68.3%. That was the third highest number behind only Mahomes and Brady. So essentially, really easy opportunities to complete passes, right? When the expected is that high. If you go to 2020, the expected completion percentage for Stafford with Detroit was 65.5%. That was 14th. So he goes from 14th to third. And naturally, Stafford's overall completion percentage climbed exactly three percentage points. So he went from 31st in the league in terms of completion percentage to 10th in the league. So that was a huge jump for Stafford. So it certainly helps to have guys like Cooper Cup, and eventually they got Odell Beckham Jr. that season for the Rams for the stretch run, but the play caller was the difference where he was scheming up easy opportunities for Matthew Stafford, or I should say easier opportunities. And Stafford's a talented quarterback, but he got that boost from having Sean McVay. Okay, so that brings us to Tua with Mike McDaniel. And we've kind of talked about this a little bit with Tua. It was just the RPO game. So... We've hit this a bit before, but Tua last season, 847 passing yards out of RPOs. That was the most in the league, and he only played in 13 games. So he had the most passing yards in the entire NFL, and he only played 13 of the 17 games, and one of them, of course, he left with an injury. But if you look at it in terms of that number the previous season, it was at just 195 yards. So that was 17th, and he only played 10 games that season. But nonetheless, 195 yards compared to 847. So if you look at it in terms of just the RPO yards per game via the pass, 65.2 last season, he averaged 272.9 passing yards per game. So essentially 23.9% of his passing yardage came via RPOs, nearly a quarter of his passing yardage. If you look at that number two years ago, 19.5 of his yards came via RPOs. And he averaged 204, so that's 9.6% of his passing yards. So it climbed 14.3% percentage points in terms of his yards gained via RPOs. Just massive. And the numbers with Tua were much better because of this. Overall, 
if you look at it two years ago, 90.1 passer rating, that was 20th. And that rating was up to 105.5 last season, which was second. The yards per attempt are at 8.9. That was first in the league compared to 6.8 in 2021. That was 25th. So, so he went from fir- he went rather from 25th all the way up to first. So this was with Tua catering the system to his strengths. Mike McDaniel, he was also protecting a bad offensive line that they, of course, had there with Miami. He had to get the ball out quickly. He went back to what Tua did well at the collegiate level, the RPO game, and they took advantage of the RPO game. Then the last guy I'm going to mention is Daniel Jones. Brian Dayball, after the mess with Joe Judge, he comes in. So... If you look at the numbers with Daniel Jones, they weren't crazy with the Giants, but his completion percentage jumped three percentage points and his passer rating went up by 7.7 points. And the Giants made the playoffs by Daniel Jones only throwing five at receptions and feeding Saquon Barkley. But with Jones in particular, what changed? Well, Dayball made his throws easier. So in 2021, Jones had an aggressiveness rating of 18%. That was the sixth highest in the league. So basically, that just means tight window throws. That's when the closest defender is one yard away or closer. So that number was six in the NFL in 2021 at 18%. So because he was throwing into all these tight windows, his expected completion percentage was 63.4%, 33rd of 37 qualifiers. So that just tells you how bad the offense was. The scheme was terrible, right? When you're Expected completion percentage is 33rd out of 37th, and you're throwing into all these tight windows. The scheme is fucked up. So you flip to 2022. The aggressiveness rating is down to 13.8%, which was 28th. So he went down 22 spots. His aggressiveness rating went down 4.2 percentage points as well, right? So that's a big drop-off, right, in terms of when you're looking at a guy that's throwing into tight windows 18% of the time, when that's down to 13.8%, 4.2 percentage points, and down 22 spots, that's massive. So sure, that's not how you want every quarterback to operate, right? Where they're not throwing into tight windows very often. But what you wanted from Daniel Jones is you wanted a point guard. Make the necessary throws. Hey, don't get us into trouble, right? <laughs> don't turn the football over. Let's not take risk, and we can win that way. So for Dayball... It was about putting the training wheels actually on Daniel Jones, right? But it worked. It worked for the Giants. Of course, they were a playoff team, and they won a game when they got there against the Minnesota Vikings. So those are five examples of coaches that have helped out and enhanced their quarterback, right? The offensive coordinator enhanced the quarterback. All these coaches took advantage of the players' skill sets. All these coaches made life easier for the quarterbacks. And that's the case for Mac Jones having this breakout season is Bill O'Brien is a proven, really good offensive mind. His offense, we talked about this with Danny Kelly earlier this week, we would expect more RPOs, but it's Bill O'Brien has to put Mac Jones in the right position to succeed. Can he have the McVay effect like he had on Goff and Stafford? Can he have the Peterson effect like he had on Trevor Lawrence? Can he have the Dayball effect like he had on Daniel Jones? Can he have the Mike McDaniel effect like he had on Tua? So if you're making the case for the breakout season for Mac, It's not the weapons. It's clearly not a great offensive line. It's not his super high ceiling in terms of the talent level. It's Bill O'Brien being an outstanding play caller and scheming things up from his young quarterback because we've seen this all over the NFL in recent history, whether it's getting the ball out quicker in the case of Trevor Lawrence, whether it's the RPO game in the case of Tua, whether it's Daniel Jones being less aggressive. We've seen this across the NFL where the play caller can enhance the quarterback. So that's my case for Mac. Getting Bill O'Brien in the building is going to enhance him as a quarterback. 
and he's going to have a breakout season like we've seen. I'm not saying it's going to be as good as Trevor Lawrence, but like we've seen in recent history where their guy, these guys went from Daniel Jones was bad two years ago, and then last year he was a pretty good quarterback. That's what I'm expecting from Mac Jones, for him to be a good quarterback. All right, the next guy that I have a case that he's going to have a breakout season, Christian Barmore, okay? So Barmore, we talked about this with Callahan a bit on Sunday. Really good as a rookie, and then he was hurt a bit last season. But what we've seen from these defensive linemen, especially the guys like Barmore that play on the interior, sometimes it can take them a while to develop, okay? Sometimes they don't take off until year four. It isn't like a receiver we see like Jamar Chase, right, where he comes in right away and he dominates, or a cornerback like Sauce Gardner comes in right away and he dominates. It takes a little bit of time for these defensive linemen, but... What we do know is that Barmore has the pedigree and he's shown promise. So one thing you need to look at here is who is Barmore playing with? Okay, so you have Lawrence Guy, you have Devon Godshaw, of course, in the mix as well in terms of the interior. But if you look at the guys on the edge that Barmore is going to be playing with, Dietrich Wise is coming off a career high with seven and a half sacks. Josh Uche is coming off a career high with 11 and a half sacks. And most importantly, Matthew Judon finished with 15 and a half sacks. That was the fifth most in the entire NFL. So this is one way that Christian Barmore can certainly have a breakout season. He's playing with a ton of talented guys. So that's the first thing, right? Is other teams are not planning or game planning rather for Christian Barmore. They're concerned about these monsters on the outside. So getting back to this idea of defensive lineman breaking out year three. Okay, let's go to recent NFL history. DeForest Buckner. Year three, 12 sacks. That was tied for 15th in the league and fourth for defensive linemen, interior. And that was up from three the year prior. He went from five tackles to loss up to 17th, or up to 17, rather. That ranked 10th in the league. So the jump was tremendous. In year three, he all of a sudden became an elite player. Okay, year three, more recently, Jeffrey Simmons with the Titans. So he went from three sacks up to eight and a half sacks. That was fifth among defensive linemen. He went from three tackles for loss up to 15. That was tied for 10th of the NFL. So again, a year three massive jump. Okay, getting back to year three a little further back, 2015, the Panthers Super Bowl year, K1 short. He went from three and a half sacks up to 11 sacks, which was tied for eighth, and was tied for first among defensive linemen. He went from four tackles to loss up to 17. That was six in the NFL. So this is a trend that we've seen in recent NFL history with defensive linemen. And remember, Short was a second-round pick like Barmore. Buckner and Simmons, of course, those guys were first-round picks. Simmons had some questions, of course, coming out of the collegiate level. But remember with Barmore, he fell because there was questions about his motivation. The Patriots traded up to get him in that second round because of his talent. So he's a first-round talent that had some questions. That's why he dropped. But playing with great guys around him and seeing this recent history of defensive linemen taking until their third or their fourth year to really take off, Based on the talent around Christian Barmore, he's set up to have a massive season this upcoming year. All right, the third guy I'm going to make a case for to have a breakout season, Hunter Henry. And I know he's a little bit older to say a breakout season, but let me just get into this here, okay? So Bill O'Brien loves tight ends. We can go back to 2012. Rob Gronkowski sets the records for touchdowns by a bunch of records, but touchdowns by a tight end with 17. He was targeted 121 times as Gronk, the most among tight ends, only, or the second most among tight ends. Only Jimmy Graham was targeted more that season. Aaron Hernandez was eighth on that list with 108 targets, and he only played in 14 games. All the seven guys in front of him played 16 games. So you can say, well, yeah, of course, Brian. He's going to target those guys because both those guys were insanely talented, certainly. 
But let's fast forward to Houston, 2016. C.J. Fedorowicz, 82 targets. That was 12th among tight ends. He only played in 15 games, by the way. Ryan Griffin, 72 targets. That was 18th. So he had two tight ends that were in the top 20 in terms of targets in 2016. 2017, those guys are both hurt, play seven and five games. 2018, Griffin was third in targets on the Texans, and he played just 14 games. And remember, for Dorowitz, due to concussions, he retired early. So Bill O'Brien wanted to use him more, but he had health issues. So that 2016 season, what we saw with Griffin, and also later on with Griffin, and then going back to Gronk and Hernandez, O'Brien wants to use this tight ends. Okay, that's part of the reason that Gusecki is in the fold. Obviously, right now, Gusecki dealing with the injury. So that means Hunter Henry, a lot bigger opportunity right now. And if you look at Hunter Henry, first of all, it's the opportunity because Gasecki, as we mentioned, is dealing with the injury. And we know that Bill O'Brien wanted to use both those guys, use 12 personnel, try to scheme it up to take advantage that way rather than the talent of the players. But nonetheless, if you look at Hunter Henry, he was targeted 76 times in 19, 93 in 2020, the year before he came here, and 75 his first year with the Patriots, Okay. So that was second on the Patriots that season, and it was 17th among tight ends in terms of the targets. Last year, that number was down to 59 targets, so he's down 16 targets. And he played in 17 games both years. And if you actually look at it, he played a higher percentage of the snaps in 2022 at 76% compared to 2021 when he was at 68%. But obviously with the targets, the numbers were way down, right? Just two touchdowns. And about 100 less yards. In 2021, he finished with nine touchdowns, okay? So if you think about it in terms of tight ends in the NFL right now, if you go back to that 2021 season, the nine touchdowns, the only guys that were ahead of him were, or I should say he was tied with these guys in terms of the most touchdowns. It was Mark Andrews, Travis Kelsey, and Dawson Knox. Connor Henry is with those guys in terms of the most touchdowns by a tight end in 2021. Okay, so he's really effective. And if you look at it, and if you look at it even further, Henry had eight of his nine touchdowns in the red zone. That ranked eighth in the entire NFL. So this was your most effective red zone target, and he was rendered ineffective that season last year. Two years ago, very effective. Last year, ineffective. The Patriots last season were dead last in the NFL in red zone offense in terms of the touchdown percentage in the red zone, 42.2%. The year prior, when Hunter Henry had a great season, nine touchdowns, eight in the red zone, the Patriots, they converted red zone trips into touchdowns 63.1% of the time. That was seventh in the NFL. So they dropped 25 spots and they dropped 20.9 percentage points. And it isn't complicated. Throw it to your best red zone weapon when you're in the red zone. Hunter Henry was that, okay? And we saw, I'm not saying this is the only reason for the dip off in terms of the red zone offense, but it's certainly part of it. So you look at Hunter Henry in general. In 2021, 34 first downs, that was ninth among tight ends. He had 50 total receptions. So 68% of his receptions went for first downs. It's a ridiculous number. The rating when he was targeted was at 120.7. That was the fifth best among tight ends that season. So Hunter Henry was really good in 2021. So knowing Bill O'Brien's history that he loves tight ends, I have to imagine that he looks at the 2021 film. Of course, he's already done it, but he looks at the 2021 film and the numbers say as well, we can do even more with this guy than he did two years ago. Like I'd expect even more volume from Hunter Henry based on these numbers. Remember, he's only entering his 29-year-old season. It's not like he's 34 or 35 years old, but this is a guy that was underutilized in a major way last year. 
And I would argue that he was even underused with the Chargers because they have so many good weapons when we're talking about the Keenan Allens of the world, the Mike Williams of the world, the Austin Ecklers of the world out of the backfield. So if I'm Bill O'Brien and if I'm looking at this Patriots offense, where are your mismatches coming from? Parker is a contested catch guy, but he works on the outside. Juju's going to do his damage in the slot. We'll see where Douglas does his damage. He's a slot guy, little receiver. Bourne, we'll see how much he plays, right? And Tyquan Thornton, we know, is a burner. But with Hunter Henry, he's the guy that you say, okay, this is a mismatch for a safety or a linebacker. We can take advantage of Hunter Henry. So if I'm Bill O'Brien, I'm looking at this and I'm going to say, this is probably my, and I know Juju got the money to come over. This is probably my best weapon if I'm looking for a mismatch. So that's the third guy I put in terms of the breakout season. So I have Mac because of the play caller. I have Hunter Henry because I just think he was underutilized. Christian Barmore because there's been a trend in the NFL. These defensive linemen take a couple of years to get going and because of the guys that he's playing with. Okay, so I did want to circle back to Mac Jones real quickly here. So Mac was asked if he had any advice for Jordan Love because, of course, the Patriots and the Packers, the joint practices. He was asked if he had any advice for Jordan Love following Aaron Rodgers, of course, naturally, because Mac followed Tom. And a little bit different, right? Like Jordan Love backed up Rodgers and Mac never played with Brady. But here was Mac's advice. I think Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback to ever play in the NFL. So to follow up on him, it's just trying to chase the standard. That he said every day. Honestly, we're definitely two different players. That's the only advice I'd have. Just continue to grow. Be yourself right. That's all you can do. Put your best foot forward and compete. But yeah, it's definitely big shoes to fill. So I'm glad Mac actually answered the question because he's really never talked about the Brady situation. And it has to be tough, right? At Bama, he took over. You could argue he was better than Tua, right? Like I know Tua won a national championship at his freshman season. But so did Mac, and Mac had one of the best seasons statistically we've seen in the history of college football from a quarterback, right? His final season there, they were unreal. That team was a wagon. So it's been, it's it's like Alabama, right away he was good. So it's like, okay, after a couple games, it's like, yeah, he's not really replacing Tua anymore because now the first year he replaced Tua, okay, yeah, you had questions. But the second year, it's like, okay, this guy's unbelievable. He's having an outstanding season. And then you're trying to replace the greatest quarterback in the history of the NFL, and you took a step back last year. So it has to be tough because it's just been an interesting couple of years from Max's perspective. If you just think about all he's been through since he set foot in the NFL, it's kind of odd, right? Because year one, everyone wanted Mac to start, or should I say most of the fan base wanted Mac to start. I know I certainly did. I personally wanted him to start because I felt like, you know what would be good for the Patriots offense? Let's get the forward pass back involved. Like this forward pass thing that teams are doing across the league. You couldn't do that with Cam Newton. So I just wanted him for that reason. But when Matt gets the gig, when he gets the gig, I should say, I was super pumped, right? Because remember, there was this whole COVID issue with Cam during training camp. So Matt got all the reps at that joint practice against the Giants. Two joint practices in a row. And the second one, he was like outstanding. 25 of 27, completed 18 consecutive passes. So after that, you really felt like, okay, actually, he's going to win the job. You weren't quite believing it yet, but after that, it's like, well, Cam kind of screwed himself over, and Mac had an outstanding practice. Like, Mac has a real opportunity here. So he wins the job, and because of that, it's not like it was handed to him, right? Like, he was better than Cam Newton in training camp, so they gave him the job. So, and Bill loved Cam, remember? But then he had the whole COVID situation, and Mac just took the job away from him. And at the time, like, it wasn't like the, he was just handed this opportunity because the Patriots were trying to win. This is the year after Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl. The Patriots want to start to try to get back into the playoffs and be competitive again. So if Bill didn't think that Mac was better than Cam, he wouldn't have given him the job. It's not about the long-term stability of the organization. The Patriots have 
never thought that way. They want to win right now. Like they want to get back into it. Not to say that they're not building long term, but they wanted to compete right after what Bill called like sort of like a reset year in 2020. He wanted to compete and he felt like Mac was the better option. So Mac goes out there his rookie season. He plays solid. And at that point, I almost felt like in a way, well, you know what? It sucks that Brady won a Super Bowl in Tampa. But at the same time, I could almost look at it and say, Actually, you know what? This may be better long-term for the Patriots after Mac's rookie season, right? Because if you look at it, you say, well, if Brady came back to the Patriots in 2020, they weren't winning shit with that roster, right? The Bills probably would have overtaken them in the division because the roster around Brady was not particularly good. Just look at the 2019 season. So after that 2021 season, even though I felt, you know what? Mac doesn't have a super high ceiling. I felt like, hey, he has a high floor. And it appears that you have your quarterback for the foreseeable future. So I feel like I speak for most Patriots fans after his rookie season. We felt good about Mac. And then last year comes around. And yes, I mentioned earlier, the biggest issue is the offensive coordinator. That's why I think Mac's going to have a breakout season in year three. But Mac didn't handle himself well, right? He has admitted that. You had former Patriots like Vince Wilfork saying that he didn't like what Mac Jones was doing, right? He said that publicly. But think about it. In his home stadium last year, what Mac went through compared to his rookie season. In his home stadium, you had fans chanting for Bailey Zappi on Monday Night Football. Mac goes from the guy that looks like the quarterback of the Patriots for the next decade or so to fans wanting this guy from Western Kentucky that nobody had ever heard of prior to the draft two years ago. That's how bad it got for Mac to the point where, hey, he's the next guy. He's the quarterback. He has the keys to the kingdom to... Actually, we think the Bailey Zappi guy may be better, okay? So then we get this great story from Andrew Callahan in the Herald after the season about how dysfunctional the Patriots organization was, especially offensively, right? Like they didn't know, hey, they were asking guys in the meeting or guys were asking the coaches in the meeting, what if they give us this look defensively? And they said, uh, yeah, we don't really know. <laughs> they didn't have the answers, right? So then you felt like sympathetic. You felt sympathy for Mac. Like, man, it was even worse than we thought. So, okay, Mac's going to get a new offensive coordinator. You, Bill and, you bring in Bill O'Brien. This is all great. But then in the offseason, you have the owner of the team. After he came out and he said that he thought Mac was put in a bad situation and that Mac's going to be good next season, he thought that it was a mistake, of course. Like, he said all this stuff about how he thinks Mac's going to have a good season, to paraphrase what Kraft was saying. But then the owner tells reporters that, hey, Lamar Jackson wants to come here because he heard from Meek Mill and it's on Bill Belichick. So right after you get this whole story from the Herald and the owner praises Mac Jones, then you have the owner saying, hey, we have a chance to get basically saying we have a chance to get Lamar Jackson. So then he's dealing with that situation and I'm potting about it saying, hey, I want Lamar. We have people in the media talking about it. So after this brief break where people felt bad for Mac, you then get this sense again, like, hey, wait, do the Patriots actually have a chance to get a former MVP and upgrade? And a lot of that was because of the owner. So it's just this weird two-year stretch for Mac. So first, it's we wanted this guy to replace Cam immediately after they drafted him, right, based on what transpired in 2020. Then he has a good rookie season. This is our guy. We love him. He's going to be the quarterback of the Patriots for the next decade. And then we're at the point where he has the injury and then we see Zappi play well and we're thinking, wait, is Zappi actually better than him to the point where it's like, hey, can you get Lamar? So it's just it's been a crazy couple of years for Mac now to the point where it's clearly his team again. Right. This is Mac Jones's team. So now is when we find out what type of quarterback Mac Jones is. But if you look at it. We have to figure out this season what Mac is. And I mentioned Bill O'Brien earlier, but Bill O'Brien 
was an offensive coordinator here, successful NFL head coach, had a winning record, successful offensive coordinator at Alabama. If Mac doesn't have a good season, and like I said, I'm predicting a breakout season for Mac. So I think this is going to happen. I think he's going to have a really good year. But if he doesn't, then the Patriots are going to have to seriously consider replacing Mac because then you're figuring out if you're picking up the fifth-year option or not. And I hope for the sake of the organization that he works out. For 20 years, we only knew stability at that position. And I don't want to start over. I don't want to start over with another quarterback. I want Mac Jones to work out, right? Because then think about it. What do we do as a fan base? And what did the Patriots do as an organization for three years if this quarterback doesn't work out? You just wasted it, right? So we are all realistic. We know that Mac is never going to be Tom. Getting back to this whole thing of Mac talking about Tom Brady. But can he be a guy that you just feel comfortable with going into games every week for the next decade or so? That's all we're asking for. Because if you asked me this after his rookie season, I felt like, yeah, you have that guy. But now, okay, offensive coordinator issues, we get all that. But we're not sure. We have to see it this year. Now, obviously, we want Super Bowls. Okay, that's what we want as Patriots fans. From my generation, that's what we grew up with. Basically, you're in the AFC Championship game every season. But like I get back to with the realistic aspect of being a fan, can you just be Matt Ryan or Phillip Rivers, right? That, and these guys are good quarterbacks. I'm not trying to take digs at those guys. I'm just saying there's a different level from the Brady thing. But those were solid quarterbacks, right? When Matt Ryan had Kyle Shanahan, he won an MVP. When he had the proper coaching, he was making deep runs into the postseason. Phillip Rivers was successful with great teams around him, LT, Antonio Gates, those guys. Can Mac be that when he has the proper coaching and when he has the proper roster? Can he be good enough to keep you in the playoffs consistently and be competitive? Just get in the tournament, then you give yourself an opportunity. We're not asking for Tom, but can he be Matt Ryan or Phillip Rivers? Those are good, stable quarterbacks, even though they weren't elite, right? Like in their era, they weren't with Brady, they weren't with Rodgers, they weren't with Peyton Manning, but they were at least good enough. Rivers made multiple AFC title games. Ryan made it to the NFC title game multiple times. And he, of course, went to a Super Bowl, had a 28-3 lead, right? And by the way, you just look at it. I think Matt can be that level of player. It all comes down to this season with Bill O'Brien. And by the way, good news from joint practices on Thursday. Our buddy Andrew Callahan, who's out there in Green Bay, who's telling us about that on Sunday night, that Mac hit Devontae Parker for a 45-yard touchdown during a two-minute drill. And the Patriots sideline emptied onto the field to celebrate it. Callahan also mentioned that Mac had one of his best practices and the Patriots offense dominated the Packers defense. Matthew Judon was asked about Mac. He says, I'm always impressed with him. So if you're looking for good signs, you're getting them relatively early on in training camp. And we'll see what Mac does at his preseason action. But I'm starting to feel good about the quarterback right now. I really am. And I think a lot of it is just when you have a guy that's not uber talented and super talented and an obvious hit. Like when Herbert came into the league, it's like, okay, that guy is going to be unbelievable, right? After we saw him play for a couple of weeks, the whole situation with Tyrod Taylor, the whole medical thing that was weird there, it's like, okay, yeah, this we can understand why this guy's really good. You see Joe Burrow play, you're like, okay, we can see why this guy's really good. Pat Mahomes, the first opportunity he gets, you're like, okay, this guy's going to be really good. Mac Jones isn't that level of talent, but if he just has competent coaching, I believe he can be good enough to be a stable quarterback at the NFL. He's got to prove it this season. But I'm really starting to feel optimistic about Mac this season. All right, I do want to get to this one other note, and it has to do with the Jets. So the Jets and the Bucks were supposed to have a second day of joint practices on Thursday. The Jets decided they weren't going to do that. They actually decided last week that they weren't going to practice for the second day. 
But then the Giants offered up the Bucks the, their facility to practice on. So it's just kind of a weird situation where it's like, okay, we're here, but we're not having joint practices with you. And the Giants are like, okay, you can use our practice. It's just weird. But nonetheless, the explanation from Robert Sala on this was bizarre. He said, I like one, one from a safety measure standpoint. I never like two practices because the second practice is usually when the injuries happen. Okay. He says, then the second practice, when the team that knows they kind of got beat, they go into their meeting rooms and the coaches are yelling at them and they come out and they play with a little more edge and it pisses each other off and all the melees happen. So I just think the second day is very unproductive. So that's what Robert Sala said. So look at this is my whole take on this real quickly is two things. First of all, why didn't they just tell the Bucks in March when they agreed to this, they, they only wanted to do one joint practice? Because in March, they said two. Why did he decide last week they were only going to do one? He should have said in March. If his belief is, and he may be right, if his belief, because the Patriots and the Packers were getting into it a bunch on Thursday, if he believes that you should only do one joint practice, why didn't you just say that in March, okay? And the other thing is you're admitting that your team is not disciplined enough for two days of joint practice, right? And I continue to be unimpressed with Robert Sala. I watch Hard Knocks again. This guy is a cheerleader. He's a cheerleader, except when it comes to the offensive line. He reams out the offensive line, which brings me to the offensive line where he got into it with them on Hard Knocks. This is a legit concern for them. And Rodgers, on that last episode of Hard Knocks, and the reason I bring this up is because it's the Jets, it's the division. He was very frustrated with the offensive line, which brings me to this. We've talked about this Jets hype and everybody's high on the Jets, but think about this. And this is good news for the Patriots, who the Patriots will have one of the best pass rushes in the NFL, they were top five in sacks last season, and it's only going to be better this year. This is why I feel good about the Patriots right now in this potential matchup against the Jets. Aaron Rodgers under pressure last season. He completed 47% of his passes. That ranked 20th out of 40 qualifiers. His passer rating when pressured, 62.6. That was 24th. And you could say, well, yeah, the Packers weren't good last season, Brian. Okay, well, how about Rodgers in his MVP season of 2021? He completed 38.4% of his passes under pressure. That was 34th of 40 qualifiers. He had a 67.9 passer rating. That was 21st. Rodgers is not a guy that is going to keep the play alive a ton anymore. He's not the same athlete that he once was. He's still a great player, but he doesn't want to do that. And we know Rodgers, he he hates throwing picks. He throws the ball away a ton. So what we have, we have evidence Rodgers over the past two seasons is horrendous against pressure. And this happens with old quarterbacks. If you look at Brady's numbers last year, they were actually atrocious when he was pressured. So all this Jets hype, everyone's getting excited. Just keep this in mind. Rodgers has been bad against pressure recently. And the Jets' Jets' offensive line, it's an issue right now. To the point where you have Rodgers during this episode of Hard Knocks talking to Makai Becton about, hey, let's talk about this. Like, let's go out and talk about this situation. Like, the Jets' offensive line is an issue right now. You bring over a Hall of Fame quarterback, a guy that's won four MVPs. If you can't protect him, we've seen that he's not good, okay? He's a great quarterback. He's one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play, but the Patriots have a ferocious pass rush. So that matchup against the Jets is gonna be interesting, and I just got thinking about that when you look at Rodgers, not great against pressure. All right, cannot wait for football season. Can you tell? I mean, we're almost here. I'm excited to get football underway. A lot more to get into. Ann Kundal from SoxProspects.com is going to join us in just a little bit. 
Football season is about to kick off, and FanDuel is giving you the chance to win all season long. Because right now, when you bet on a Super Bowl winner, you can get bonus bets every time they win in the regular season. Just pick any team to win the Super Bowl, and you'll get bonus bets after every victory. And I really like the Bengals. They're plus 1,000 to win the Super Bowl. That's the fourth shortest odds, but it's still really good value for a team that has been knocking at the door the past couple of years. I also like the Ravens at plus 1,800. If the Ravens and those receivers click, Lamar, of course, we know he can play at an MVP caliber level. We'll see how those receivers pan out with Lamar. And also, we know that Ravens defense is going to be legitimate because it is every year. You can use your bonus bets on spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and start earning bonus bets with America's number one sportsbook. That's FanDuel.com slash Pike. Must be 21 plus and present in selected states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit TheRinger.com slash RG. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max bonus $50 unless specified otherwise. Restrictions apply. See terms at Sportsbook.FanDuel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from SoxProspects.com, the director of scouting. He is back in Kundal. And what is going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well. Um, tough series, obviously. You know, not ideal to go down to Washington and lose two or three. But, uh, you know, otherwise, I'm doing pretty well. You know, end of the summer, Patriots are ramping up. We've got the Celtics schedule. So there's a lot going on in the Boston sports market. But still, it's mostly Red Sox and uh, the system for me. Yeah, you're not kidding, man. Lots coming down yeah. the pipe with you got Mac Jones. You get this this stupid tournament that the NBA is doing, <laughs> all this different type of stuff that's getting announced today. The schedule, as we're recording on Thursday, right after the Red Sox dropped two of three to the Nationals. And I had given up on the game, man. And then all of a sudden, seventh inning comes around. Urias hits the Grand Slam, which is like, okay, here we go. Maybe you're back in it. Then Rafael Devers hits a home run, and Rafi's been cold as of late. I'll get into why I think that's happening in a second here, but nice to see him take a breaking ball out of the ballpark. And you feel like, all right, it's 9-7, kind of cooking with gasoline here. Let's see what you can do. But unfortunately, the Red Sox can't come through on the 10th. And even in the 10th, Verdugo leadoff single off Finnegan. Duran doubles the opposite way. And then back-to-back, so that's back-to-back pinch hits. You're like, oh, this is depth. The Red Sox have a nice bench. They're bringing in the lefties to face the righties. Here we go. They're going to win this game. McGuire grounds out. Endeavors, 98 outside, out of the strike zone, misses on that. And then Story hits one pretty good. but hits, Yeah, hits it right at the second baseman. So, unfortunately, they lose this game, and they lose the series, which, to me, like, these are... I don't know. This team is so difficult to figure out because they've had a lot of success against the good teams. Like they'll take series off the Braves and then we'll have these series like this where I know the Nationals are playing much better as of late. They've actually Mm -hmm. played really well. But this is a series you have to win, especially considering and we'll get into Whitlock. You tie the game up at two after the Reyes home run on Wednesday night. You feel like, okay, you're going to win this game. Whitlock blows up. This one today, Sale, he struggled with his command a little bit, and then Winkowski comes in, doesn't have it. Murphy comes in, doesn't have it. But this is a series against a Washington team where if you're serious about getting this final wild card spot, you at least got to win two out of three. I thought you had to sweep them, really. And these are the ones that you can't let slip away because you look at what's coming up. You have the Yankees. Okay, they stink. But then you have four against the Astros. Three against the Dodgers, as that Mookie Betts guy is going to come back to Fenway. We'll see what that's like, the atmosphere. And then you get the Astros again. So you have 10 straight against the Astros and the Dodgers. It's brutal. Like, it's, it's, it, I think it harkens back to something I think we talked about in the last, uh, last time I was on. And it's, they just, they've lost so many winnable games this year that it makes you think, what if, if they just even win like half those games? 
because I think they're kind of doing overall record what was expected or frankly, probably better than a lot of people expected for the season. Yeah. But at the same time, when you look back, I think it's going to be a lot of frustration because there were so many games like these last two where it's like they were in the game. It's close, you know, bad bullpen, couple of bad calls, maybe by the umpire today, especially. I mean, maybe we'll talk he was about terrible, it. man. He's so bad. Well, this whole series, let's be honest, that Justin Turner call was one of the worst strike oh. I've ever seen. <laughs> that, wasn't where even that was close. like a foot outside. But then today, the Jeter downs are bad, and it's little things like that that can completely change an entire game. You know, he's trying to bunt. The first two pitches are in the top of the strike zone. Um, calls them both balls. Sale walks him. Floodgates that inning. Like little things like that can just change the complete complexion of the game. And when you're the Red Sox and you're having to fight for every single win, you just can't have those calls going against you. And that it just seems like recently they've just had a string of bad luck with that, and it just spirals from there. And then we saw it today with you know guys' stuff was down. It's just. It was a rough series. Um, yeah, not 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 what you wanted against a team where, especially coming into this next run, as you said, with that ten game stretch, you need you needed to get at least two or three here, hopefully a sweep. And now it just puts a ton of pressure going in New York, where they basically have to sweep the Yankees. Yeah, they have to. And before we get into Sale and Whitlock, just another thing you point out: these games that are winnable that you lose, that you look at and you're like, how did they lose this game? How did they lose that game? A lot of it, and it's not solely this today, but a lot of it comes down to this team defensively. And I know, yeah. okay, they get story back, which brings some stability. But like Raphael Devers, when Sale's struggling there, he's got a ball hit right at him. I get it's hit hard, but he boots another ball, run comes in. And this is something we've seen all well, season e- long. Even but- before that, the Connor Wong throw. Like the, oh, he yeah, should have never, he, he should have yeah. never thrown that. That base yeah. was gone. Just hold the ball. And yeah. It, it's as you said, it's it's fundamental plays from professional players that just it shouldn't happen. You know, we're at the point of the season where by now, you know, that that's that shouldn't that shouldn't be a part of their game. And unfortunately, it's still creeping back in every now and again. And I do agree. Story has really settled things down in the middle. He had that play. I think it was the first game in the series go, ranging to his right. The throw to Casas in a big situation with two outs. Yep. Um, little things like that are starting to tighten up. And I think the second base defense has gotten better with Arias um, and Pablo Reyes over there, who's been really good. But still, like it just it, it seems like they're their own worst enemy enemy in a way, you know, it, whether it be the walks from the pitchers, you know, a hanging breaking ball like Winkowski was doing today or then, yeah, those errors. They just it, it seems like every one of them just comes back to bite them. Whereas, you know, I feel like if you're a better team or you don't make as many of those mental mistakes, um, you know, you can get away with it like if that, you know, Connor Juan might make might make that error, but you'll get out of the inning still. Whereas the Red Sox, it just seems every time something like that happens, it usually ends in the other team scoring a run or two. Yeah. And you just look at it in totality. Now, the Red Sox on the season, they're at minus 20 defensive runs saved, which is 26, 82 errors. That's the most. And if you actually look at baseball savants metric, it's even worse. The outs above average, they're at minus 52. And the team that's second or worse is Cincinnati at minus 19. Uh, Lou Merloni was talking about this on the broadcast. Yeah. I'm like, that, that is incredible that it's yeah. that bad. And we knew about the defensive run save, but you look at outs above average, it's even worse than that. And in particular, Raphael Devers, and we've talked about his defense before, but this is supposed to be your franchise player. This is your best player. And we talked last time you were on, we said, just give us, give us average defense. You can't continue to make this these mistakes. And it continues to happen over and over Again, with Raphael Devers, unfortunately. Now, good sign for Rafi is that he did go deep today. And one of the things I was looking at, like, he has been really cold in August. And mm-hmm. if you look at his numbers in July, he was one of the best hitters in the sport. Entering, or I should say, in the month of July, 354, 411, 646, 1057 
OPS. And then you look at the numbers entering today in August, it was 225, 367, so he's still taking his walks based on the, the 225 batting average. Just 375 in terms of the slug, which was 126 out of 175, and 752 OPS. So I was looking at it, like the problem for Rafi this month compared to last month, the launch angle was at 4.6 degrees, which you'll love to see today. The home runs at 26 degrees, which is, that's what you want to see from Rafi. So his barrel percentage this month entering today was 5.9, which was 119th. You go to July, he's at 13.2 degrees. That's 93rd. All he has to be is slightly above average or average because he hits the ball so hard. So the barrel percentage was 14.7%, which was 24th out of 180 qualifiers. So this is when Rafi, like everybody talks about swinging at pitches out of the zone and all that stuff. He's been done a much better job, especially recently, basically after May, he's done a much better job taking walks, being more disciplined at the plate. I mean, that Finnegan fastball, it's a tough thing to lay off there because it's tailing the, to the other side of the plate there. But overall, when I look at Rafi, one of the issues that he's had is sometimes he gets in these streaks where everything he's everything's on the ground. He's hitting way too many balls on the ground. And when he elevates the ball, this is when he has these amazing runs. So hopefully that home run will get him going. Now, I don't know if that's going to help his defense because that's seemed to be an issue all season long. Yeah, well, it, it, it's tough, too, because in that at bat, he had the pitch that he wanted. There was a fastball down and in. Yep. I want to say it was the second, second or third pitch, second yep. pitch of the at bat. Second pitch. And he took a massive cut and just got under it. And I think that's one of those ones that if he's in one of his good spells, that's in the upper deck and the right field bleachers. And, yep. you know, he had that one good swing today. Hopefully that can get it going. But I just think I look at the Red Sox and it's it's they just don't have a lot of margin for error on either side of the ball. And they've run into a stretch, unfortunately, where the offense has just gone really cold kind of coincides with Justin Turner going down, which I think is really important and kind of ties yeah. into what we saw today where they're so left-handed heavy that they need Turner's bat in the lineup to kind of balance things out. And without him today, obviously Patrick Corbin missing bats, which he hasn't done in like five years, but um, <laughs> yeah. they just struggled against lefties as a whole. And they have a bunch of guys like that who have pretty noticeable platoon splits. So that was just, it was nice to see Devers get going and hopefully he can carry that over, but he's just, you know, we you need you have to count on him, Yoshida, guys like that to produce because just the margin for errors we're seeing is so low, whether it be, you know, they rarely get a two way complete game with the pitching, the hitting defense, every or three way, I guess uh, everything working as uh, well together. And so with that, with that said, you know, they can't have those little mistakes, those those missed pitches in the zone like they just they need to capitalize on every opportunity. And that's just something that Devers hasn't been doing lately. Yeah, and you mentioned it in terms of Patrick Corbin. So he came into the game on Thursday with a 15% strikeout rate. That was 59th of 61 starters. Today, he struck out six. He had a 28.6% strikeout rate. If you look at qualified starters this year, only seven guys are north of 28%. This is Patrick Corbin. He doesn't strike people out, and he was striking the Red Sox out left and right. And to your point about lefties and Turner, you look at the month, the month of August, 224 against lefties, 21st. 259 on base percentage for the Red Sox against lefties, 24. 343 slug, 22nd. OPS is 602, that's 23rd. And then you look pre-August, 261 ninth, 354 OBP, 4th. OPS is 759 at 10th. So you were hitting lefties all season long until recently, and I do think you're right on that, that it's, some of it has to do with Justin Turner. And the other element to that is we saw the home run from Casas, right, mm -hmm. in early in this game where Casas against lefties, he really hasn't done much damage. Like, it's amazing to me that he has a 325 on base percentage against lefties because 
His walk rate is 16.9%, which is first among lefties with at least 70 yeah, plate great. appearances. It's, fantastic. It, it's, it's unbelievable, which makes me feel optimistic for the future because we saw this even earlier this season against pitching in general, where he was taking a lot of walks. He just wasn't doing damage. So eventually he's going to hit lefties. But the home run today, 431 feet to left center field. Like that yeah. that's just not normal to have that type of power the opposite way. So maybe he can get going against lefties. And the other guy is... Yoshida. Now, hopefully that he had the two hits today, that sort of gets him going, but he was in a real funk prior to today. 177 in his last 64 plate appearances prior to today. And if you look at really the streak that he had going before that, he had been one of the best players, best hitters in Major League Baseball for a long stretch from the 30th of June to the 25th. He was hitting 417. And I do wonder about this and and sorry about um, Yoshida. 445 plate appearances entering today. What do you have? Four today. Yep. He had 515 last year in Japan, and he had 460 the year prior. So yep. I do wonder, and a lot of the contact, like his line drive rate has been way down recently. I do wonder, is he starting to get a little bit fatigued? Because we saw it early, like adjustment period, and he, he f- figured that out relatively quickly after the very, like the slow first week. I mean, it wasn't that long. But now I do wonder if there's some fatigue and Alex Cora giving him a couple of days off. I think that would sort of indicate that. Yeah, I was just going to make that exact point is, you know, when you're playing the season over in uh, in the ja- the Japan, um, the JPL or the Japanese League, you're not playing as long. And this season, especially too, with the WBC before the season, yeah. a lot of travel for that. Um, so extra adding extra travel there and extra competitive games, frankly, you know, a month or basically a month before the season started. That's just a lot of baseball that he's played. And it's one of these things you often see with prospects. Um, and it's you were seeing it kind of now with some of the guys in the Red Sox system that especially with the high schoolers and the year after they're drafted or the college guys, you know, by the time you get to August, this is the longest they've played baseball in years, pretty, pretty much ever. And I think with Yoshida, I do wonder, especially since he's not overly physical. I mean, you look at him, he's, you know, he's not the biggest guy. He doesn't, he's not one of those guys who looks like he's built like Casas, who's built to withstand, you know, 162 yeah. game season. I do wonder if, yeah, if he's tiring and with someone like him, if, if the bat is just slowing even a little bit, you know, there's he's got to be pretty on point locked in to get for everything right with his swing and the way he works at the plate. And if it's just off a little, and I think that's kind of what we've seen. Um, I do wonder if there's some fatigue going on there and if that's what's kind of driving his struggles the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it was nice. And hopefully that he gets back on track because clearly they need that bat. And I think there is probably something to the fact that he's playing more baseball than he than he really ever has so he has to be wearing down at least somewhat and you wonder now like do you get him more days at the dh try to get him more opportunities there but then it's well justin turner you don't want him playing in the field so i think that's why they just decided to give him a couple of days off and see if that sort of gets him rejuvenated it was nice to see duran come in and get that pinch hit i alluded to he referenced yeah. before the game that he had been struggling with his mental health so it's nice to see and he was in the middle of a tough streak for him over the last 10 games or so and he's had such a great season so good to see him getting back on track and I hope everything's all right with him in terms of his mental health because obviously he came out before the season and spoke about how he had issues with that last year but I do want to get to sale because so I was at the game Friday night and I rewatched it after and the atmosphere at Fenway it was awesome on Friday night he was electric he what? He struck out seven of the 16 batters he faced. And yeah, perfect. There, what, four and a third or something? Yeah, it, it was incredible. It was like it was like this guy had never been injured. And then this game comes around on Thursday and the command just wasn't there. You knew it when in the third inning we referenced Jeter Downs. He walked Jeter Downs. I mean, come on. 
I mean, I think I have an opportunity to strike out Jeter Downs, okay? <laughs> We've seen Jeter Downs play baseball. You don't want to walk Jeter Downs. So that's when I'm like, okay, there's issues there. And you reference and Wong throws it into center field. But after that, he hit Ruiz, which was an issue. Fifth inning, he walked Call. And then he walked Jeter Downs again. He walked the eight yeah. and the nine hitter. He had no walks on Friday. So today is three walks and a hits batsman. The command just really wasn't there for sale. Now, some of this, he was still getting a lot of swings and misses considering he had some issues with his command. And then, of course, we reference Winkowski comes in, gives it up. But the big thing that jumped out to me in this one is the velocity down across the board. Like the four-seamer, 91.9 miles per hour is at 94.5 on Friday. Now, he still got some whiffs on that pitch. Four out of 14, not great. Seven out of 14 on the four-seamer on Friday night. The slider, he's still got swings and misses on that one. But I just look at it and it's kind of... Whitlock had this experience on Wednesday night where his stuff was way up on Sunday and then he comes back on Wednesday. He doesn't have it. And I just wonder if Sale, it's the first time, you know, coming back and pitching after your first outing. You don't you have that opportunity to go back out there, but you just wonder if there were sort of maybe and not that the Red Sox going to plan this, but did he need an extra day considering he hadn't pitched in so long? I just I, I attribute this to him. maybe he was just fatigued. Like if we see the velocity down in the next outing, then I'm going to be concerned because then it's a trend. But I think maybe this is just an indication that this is a guy making his way back. Like, quite frankly, I expected this on Friday. I expected yeah, him I to. Agree. But and then we got it today, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, I also wonder if, if there was something to it, it, it being Washington and in the sense that he could kind of just he, he was still successful. I mean, until that last inning, he was still pitching fine, even though yeah. he was, you know, 91, 92, mostly. And so I, I do wonder if it was one of those things where he's kind of controlling himself, knowing that, hey, I know I can't go out there. Because against Detroit, as you said, he was, you know, bumping 95, 96 easily. He was um, fired up, man. Yeah. He was like pumped up. Yeah. So it's like, I, I can't do this every five days right now. So I'm going to take it a little easier this start. You know, I know I can get these guys out without my best stuff. And I, I think that I do wonder if, you know, trying to take something off, maybe the fastball ended up was what kind of caused the command issues today. Yeah. And uh, it also didn't That's help that he, he had no change up today either. Like, let's be honest, he threw, I think, six the entire game. It's like nine percent. Um, and he, He's mostly a, a fastball slider guy now anyway. But still, you know, I, I, when when he's when he's on, he's going to be throwing more than nine percent change up. So I just it's I agree that the next start for him is going to be a big one to kind of see where he's at, whether this was just a blip on the radar and him coming back. Because frankly, I, he, he came back quicker than I expected. He only had what? I think two rehab assignments or rehab starts or three, maybe. Um where the last one was only a couple innings. So I, I do wonder if that, you know, they're kind of treating these more like rehab starts and he's going to be kind of up and down for the next few until he stretches back out. So I think today the limit was 75 pitches. He only ended up going 65 until he's up more towards that, like 90 pitch threshold. And then we'll kind of see where his stuff is at. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely concerning when you see, you know, two and 2.6 mile per hour drop on the baseball savant page for him today compared to his yearly average. And same thing with Whitlock, like that was, that was more concerning to me, frankly, because it, it's one of those one of the he was built up as a starter this year. He was kind of ready to start. And this was the first time we saw him have to come in on short rest. And he just didn't have it at all. You know, his we saw him. It was 96, 97, that first outing and out of the bullpen looked electric. And then he comes in yesterday and he was like 92, 94. Didn't have any feel for his secondaries. And we saw the end result, you know, four runs in one inning and that game's over. And so that that's definitely one of the concerns you have when you're kind of yo-yoing these guys back and forth between the rotation, the bullpen, no set roles is. Guys get used to a certain schedule, and when you're disrupting that midseason, it can be hard for them to adjust, especially coming off an injury. So that's definitely something I'm going to be watching with Whitlock, and frankly, with Tanner Houck too coming back. You know, there's another guy who 
has only had a couple rehab assignments and you're throwing him right in against the Astros. That's not an easy matchup for him. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just, there's Welcome a lot of moving back, parts. Tanner. Yeah. There's a lot of moving parts with this Red Sox pitching staff right now that you ideally would not have happening in August. Um, I think you'd want every, the roles to kind of be more settled, but you got to play with the hand you're dealt. So we'll kind of see how things shake out the next week or two. Yeah. Well, I want to piggyback off the Whitlock thing because obviously that was, alarming on Wednesday night and concerning, quite frankly, because you were so fired up. And I mentioned this earlier, but you're so fired up after the Reyes home run and you're like, okay, our bullpen's finally whole. Because earlier in that game, Lou made a good point on the broadcast. You have John Schreiber coming out in a game you're losing two to nothing. Earlier on in the season, and I know Schreiber was hurt, but you didn't have the luxury to do that. Like you were tossing out guys that had no business pitching for your team, right? Because you didn't have the depth and you felt like, okay, now the bullpen depth is finally back. And you look at the game that they won on Tuesday night, it's exactly how you draw it up, right? It's Winkowski, it's Martin, and I know Winkowski, we mentioned, wasn't great today, and it's Jansen, like, this is how it's supposed to work. And then the next night, you tie it up, here comes Garrett Whitlock. This is a bullpen weapon, and you mentioned the velocity completely down on everything. He didn't look like the same guy, and on Sunday, though, if you look, it was basically a mirror image of where the velocity was at with all his pitches his rookie season, when that's when he had his best year coming out of the bullpen, And I just, I can't believe that we're talking about Garrett Whitlock this year, and it's almost like a lost season. I mean, you look at it out of pitchers that have thrown 50 innings, 560 ERA, 205th out of 232. The opponent's batting average is 213th out of 232, and the slug is 221st out of 232. And as a starter, the ERA was north of five, and even if you say he had a little bad luck, well, he had issues all season long. I mean, early on, and it was the changeup and the fastball, the velocity was too close, right? He's had trouble at times just locating his pitches, and we saw a little bit of that in the game the other day. And I just wonder, like, with Garrett Whitlock long-term, what are they going to do? Because I just, I can't imagine, or I don't want them to go into another season. And hopefully he gets right this year because they need him down the stretch, obviously. But I don't want to go into another season, like, we're wondering, what is he? Is he a starter? Is he a bullpen weapon? Like, they just have to define the role and go with it. And I'm really starting to get to the point where I'm leaning towards just make him a bullpen weapon. There's nothing wrong with having a great relief pitcher that can give you multiple innings. And I just wonder now, it's not like Whitlock's super young. I get he's only in his third year in Major League Baseball, but I just want to figure out a solution with the experiment because he's too good of a pitcher to have this type of season where he's not effective whatsoever. Like him being a net negative for this team this year is shocking to me. Yeah, I agree. And and it's hard. And I think it's what we're talking about with the defined roles is he needs to go into next season with a defined role and you need to just stick with it. Um, If it's going to be a starter, it's a starter. If it's going to be a reliever, it's a reliever. But I look back and it's just it's he's not the same pitcher he was that first year. Uh, I remember, you know, didn't know a lot of knew a little bit about him, but no one really knew what his stuff was going to look like coming back from the Yankees because he obviously he had the Tommy John surgery. He hadn't pitched that previous season comes out in spring training and I remember scouts texting me being like, this is the best pitching prospect in the system. And cause he was obviously still a prospect technically at that time. He never played yeah. in majors. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's fun. Like, cool. He goes out there, you know, one of the best relievers in baseball, throwing 95, 96, 97 with his sinker. He's got that change up at 83 sliders, like 84, 85 hard slider. And then you look at him now and it's just completely different. Like his velocity is down two miles an hour on average compared to that first year, his slider that was like a true hard slider has evolved into a sweeper. That is pretty, it's not great. You know, the, the results this year, 
Um, well, it would actually be pretty I good. On, but. Can I stop you on that in a second? You mentioned the sweeper. This is like he keeps saying that it's a slider, not a sweeper. The problem is it's going to get labeled as a sweeper when you throw it 79 miles an hour. Yeah. Like yeah. So when it's at 82, like it was on Sunday. It, it's it, good, it's too. Not, yeah, it's not one of these big, like, it's not like a vintage Chris Sale slider or a Tanner Houck, like a Frisbee that he throws at times. So that means that the velocity needs to be up on that pitch. So hit like the the whole idea of is it a sweeper, it's a slider. Well, it's playing like a sweeper right now. That's why it's yeah. labeled as a sweeper, because it's playing like a sweeper. So it just, that's a pitch that he has to get back on track. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And the other thing is think about, you mentioned his first year. The ground ball rate was near 50%. Last year is near 40. This year it's hovering. It was hovering around 44%, right? So you go from elite to not that great last year. And this year you're kind of in the middle. Like that used to, like his stuff would be generate, should generate a lot of ground balls. Correct. Like well, he's that's, a power sinker guy. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's like what that, you expect that's what when your sinker changeup guy, you're pitching North South. That's what yeah. you're expecting. Obviously the sweepers, the East West component, but yeah, like when you're primarily North South guy, you want ground balls and he just, he's, he's just not getting it. And, it's I'm looking at a savant page and it's like his fastball or sinker and changeup have just been getting crushed this year. And it kind of, as you said, as good as he looked in that first outing was as bad as he looked yesterday. And it's hard to be able to trust him, you know, going forward for the rest of the season. But at the same time, you probably don't have better options. So you're going to have to keep throwing him out there and hope that he can kind of find regain that form because they need him to be that that multi inning guy. Now that Winkowski is pretty much a one inning guy. And a Cutter Crawford's in the rotation. They don't have anyone for that multi-inning righty relief role. They have Chris Murphy for the lefty role. Granted, he struggled today, but he's been overall, I would say, good this season. Yeah. But they need a right-handed complement to that. And I think they obviously envisioned Whitlock in that role. And just the guy you saw the first day, perfect. Like, that's exactly what you envisioned. And then yesterday just wasn't that at all. So I think it's like it was hail. You know, it's hard to count on these guys going forward, but that's who you have. So you're going to have to. And I think you just got to hope that they can show that this was kind of a blip on the radar, just a rough start as they're coming back from injury. And as they get more reps, they can kind of get more consistent with their stuff from outing to outing. Yeah. And the good news is from a bullpen perspective, Martin's been nails all season. He continues to be nails. Jansen's been really good lately. Yep. And well, he's been really good all season outside yeah. of like that Cardinals that, situation, which was versus, weird. That's yeah. that didn't even count to me because yeah, the Cardinals, <laughs> they changed the rule because of what the Cardinals were doing, which I think tells yeah. you everything you need to know. <laughs> Yeah. And the other guy that's coming on is Schreiber. Like Schreiber has yeah. been really good lately, like his last five appearances or so. He's been outstanding. So that's the good news. They just got to get Garrett Whitlock right, because that was, you know, I was I like legitimately felt bad for him watching that. I'm like, this guy is so good. Like what's yeah. going on with him? It just sort of irritates. And you just wonder about the health thing going forward, too, because now the elbow, it's barked at him twice this season. Yeah. So you just well, wonder how that. Especially right. as a guy, I think he's had two Tommy Johns before. I think he had one yeah. in college and then the other one, obviously, when he was in the Yankee system. So there are just certain guys that sometimes, you know, as good as they are, it injuries are always a concern with them. And I do wonder if that's what he is and why I think it's so important, kind of what you said earlier, to make sure that he knows going into the next season, this is your role. We're not changing it. Just make a decision and just stick with it and don't go back and forth depending on what you need because there are some guys that that can work with but I don't think with someone with his injury track record you want to be bouncing them back and forth and this is going to sound like a bizarre thing to say but I do wonder if he needs like some Steph Curry treatment where Steph Curry came into the NBA and he kept having all these ankle injuries and they had to like retrain him how to run because like it was causing all these injuries and I look at Garrett Whitlock man he has got a weird gait and I like remember last year I had the hip issue. Like it's yeah. a weird game. Like he, he always he walks, he runs weird or walks. Yeah, weird. yeah. It like looks uncomfortable. So I'm wondering if there's something like 
from an anatomy standpoint that they got like maybe he needs a new masseuse or something along those lines or <laughs> I don't know like it I know this sounds like it's out of left field uh, not to use a baseball pun there but it just he moves weird I'll say no. that and he's a, he's a guy that moves weird and he's had a lot of injuries so it does concern me but we do have to talk about maybe the best player in baseball right now and that's Pablo Reyes because oh, yes. <laughs> in August he was hit, he was hitting 371 prior to the game today he hit the huge home run that we referenced on Wednesday this is crazy like at the beginning of the season, I'm like, wait, who is this guy? He was playing in like the, wasn't he playing a triple A for the A's? He was a bench player for the what, Las Vegas A's or whatever they're called. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, <laughs> they the got worst franchise in baseball. And I don't know, like he looks pretty good. He looks pretty comfortable to play. Look, this is probably in all likelihood just a flash in the pan, but it's been pretty cool to see. Like we, we don't get a lot of stories like this, especially considering there was so much sort of hope with Arroyo that he could be. Mm-hmm your second baseman, and that didn't happen. The Kike Hernandez situation Mondesi didn't work too. Out. Yeah, Mondesi. Who the hell knows where that guy is? I mean, he was He's supposed not, to... I think they said he was shut down recently for yeah. the season, so, yeah. I remember, I remember when they signed him, and it's like, oh, story's out, too. Oh, this is great. The guy that's going to play is somebody that is uh, dealing with an injury. And then Yu Chang, we all know he couldn't hit. I mean, you throw that guy a breaking ball, he's done. I mean, give him credit for what he did in terms of playing shortstop for this team. But then this guy, like, comes out of nowhere. I mean, it's it's been a pretty cool story, and it's almost like now... And I know Urias pinch hit and he hit the grand slam, but it's almost like now Cora wants him in the lineup every day. Yeah, and it's I think it's one of those moves that you have to give credit to High and Bloom, the front office, the scouting staff, and then the development staff to identify him as someone who because he's not getting a lot of at bats in AAA when they got him. You know, this was someone they clearly had someone be like, I like this guy. We need this player at we we need a guy at this position. Find me someone in the minors that we can get cheaply. They came with this guy. He's come in and he's done nothing but play well and. You saying that, uh, you know, his how, we don't know how sustainable is the play. I was actually looking his, you know, his XBA is like 288. His expected slugging is 449. So that's mm. not bad. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like, obviously, he's not as good as he's performing right now. But right. He looks like someone who and they have him under team control now that could be a perfectly serviceable bench uh, like utility player for several years. And to get that type of player for basically nothing is the kind of shrewd moves you need to make to be a sustainable organization. Obviously, as Heimblum has constantly talked about, that's what they're going for. So, yeah, I, I think he's been a great addition. I mean, he crushes fastballs. It's, you know, we saw it today. He, he had, I think, no, it was a, a, the home run yesterday. And then today, it's funny now, he like comes to the plate in big situations. You almost expect him to do something, which is just weird that we've reach, reached the point of the season where Pablo Reyes is someone, you know, you kind of want up in a big situation because he just seems like he has a knack for putting the barrel on the ball and hitting it hard somewhere in the gap. And so, yeah, I, I think that he's been exactly what the team needs and he's well, des- he's well deserved or well earned, you know, that spot as the bench uh, utility play option. Yeah. And he's got a lot of energy too. Like that's good to have. It's a grind of a season when you have a guy that brings that type of energy to the yeah, ball. When he, park scored, every day. he scored on that pass ball that bounced right back to the catcher. Like that was <laughs> great. That's just, that's baseball instincts right there. One-on-one, you know, there are certain guys who don't score on that. He read it immediately went slide to the front side of home plate. Like it was just a picture, picture perfect definition of what you want to see from kind of what you said from that, you know, that grinder player who leaves it all on the field. Just he's been a lot of fun to watch this season. So, hey, I wanted to get your take on this before we move on to some of the prospects as a guy that the director of scouting at Sox Prospects and you've seen Bayo for a long time. I was mm-hmm. talking about this on my pod on Sunday is just his last couple of outings have not been great. He's had a tough stretch here. And one of the issues we laid it out earlier this season is his second pitch against lefties. Like we know he's got the change up. It's his best pitch, but he really hasn't found another pitch that's affected 
that's effective rather against left-handed hitters, which is obviously, he's already a really good pitcher, and he looks like he's going to be at the front end of the rotation for the Red Sox for the foreseeable future. All that stuff is great, but I just wonder, what do you think is the pitch that he's going to develop or that's going to be more consistent against left-handed hitters? Because right now, the two-seamer obviously hasn't been effective. The four-seamer has not been effective. At times, he's trying different, like the... He tried at one point. He tried what? He tr- tried a slider. That's I mean, he tried has a cutter. A, tried he a tried cutter. a cutter. Yeah, he tried yeah. a cutter. Which that I mean, I, I understand the idea there, right? Because the slider is tough, tougher to harness. So maybe the cutter can be effective. But he needs something to pitch inside, right? Because right now, like his stuff is all going to the outer portion of the plate. I just I wonder what do you think is the pitch that will work for him in the future? Because I'm confident he's going to find it. I'm just wondering what do you think he can find in the near future here. I think it's the cutter is going to be the next developmental step for him. And that's something he threw this year without basically ever practicing it. He just, you know, started throwing it between starts and added it to a game. And he hasn't used it much. He's thrown 37 this year. But I think that's the pitch that is going to be what he's going to have to add. Because as you said, like the changeup, as good as it is, if you can't, if that pitch isn't working, he has no pitch to get lefties out right now. Yeah. And I think that the cutter would pair really well with the rest of his arsenal because you'd have that changeup going down and away. You have the four seam you can throw up. You have the sinker down. Then you have a cutter that you can throw in on the hands at a harder at harder velo. So there's kind of more margin for error there. Whereas slider, if he hangs up slider, it's just it's getting yeah. annihilated. And we're seeing, yeah. I mean, even this year, and this isn't even just against lefties. Like the XBA slugging against it, like almost 300 batting average, over 500 slug against the slider. He's got to find that you know that breaking ball or that that third pitch and i think the cutter is the one but i think it's something that's going to have to come over the offseason that's it's just really hard to teach yourself a new pitch or learn a new pitch and kind of develop it to the point where you're confident enough to throw it in games in that short of a time and so i think that that's something in the offseason the red sox pitching lab put him in the pitching lab and kind of you know go to work on finding a way to add that pitch into his arsenal so that he can come in next offseason or next season excuse me with you know four pitches well variations of fastballs but you know what i mean four pitches that he's confident in and, and one multiple pitches to get both righties and lefties out yeah you're right it's it's got to be the cutter and the other component i'd say that i love about him is just remember last year like you mentioned he learned this cutter in between starts and then all of a sudden yeah. one game he threw like five and he had ne- like never thrown it before you go back to last season remember he was just like chatting with rich hill and he's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw a curveball. It's just like, <laughs> I love the fact that he has, like, that shows you how special he is. Like, he's got a, a really a, strong pitching aptitude. You know, he, yeah. he's really invested in, in development and learning, trying to being the best he possibly can at his craft. And I think that the Red Sox front office and the pitching development staff they put in place has done a much better job as of late, kind of working with these guys and getting the most out of them. And I think that he's kind of one of the first, the guys last. I mean. And you know, it's been said a lot. He's one of the few guys they've had over the last few years who's kind of come up through the system and developed into a homegrown starting pitcher. But I, I think that, yeah, just after after another year of experience, another, you know, offseason of strength and conditioning, I think that he'll be able to come in next season ready to go and kind of take his place as the best pitcher on the Red Sox staff or ideally second best if they go out and sign someone in the offseason. Yeah. And you mentioned that last time about signing somebody. I want Blake Snell. That's the guy that I want. Oh. Heimblum, you don't like him? I, I like his stuff when he's good, but I just would be scared with the consistency because he, you know, he's just been so up and down in his career yeah. that I do I, that. I do wonder if someone like, a, like, I know it's boring. It's kind of a boring picture, but like an Aaron Nola type makes more sense for what they need. Cause I think with Bayo, there's that kind of like that range of outcomes where he could be someone who could develop into like a really good number two. Maybe he's more like a three where it, 
they 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 need someone, another guy that's kind of steady that you'd be like, we can throw this guy for 200 innings. We know what we're getting. Um, whereas Snell has that range of outcomes again, too. Like he, he's pitching like a borderline ace for this year with San Diego. I think he's arguably the favorite for the Cy Young in the NL. Yeah. But then you also, you know, you look back at some of his seasons in Tampa, like he's pretty frustrating. Um, and he, yeah, he walks strikes a lot of consistently. Guys. And when it, I'll be it, honest, I don't like starting pitchers who don't throw strikes. It's one of yeah. my biggest pet peeves because if you don't throw strikes and you're putting free base runners on, that usually tends to come back and bite you, especially in an era where home runs reign supreme. You know, no, it's if, a fair point. Cease has had this issue too with walks yeah, in yeah. his career. You know, that's another guy who's like, at when he's going, I mean, he's like we saw last year, he was incredible. But when he's struggling, it's it's yeah. because of I the mean, walks. Snell's the other guy, too. the other guy who didn't, I mean, Julio Arias would fit pretty well. Obviously, there's some other issues there behind um, off the field. But yeah, if if just looking on pure talent, like he would fit really well, too. But I, I think I would assume they're going to target uh, the guy coming from Japan. I, I think yeah. that that would be the guy that they I, they've been vi- literally videoed scouting him over there. Obviously, every team is. But. Um, given the success they've had with Yoshida coming over there and how how comfortable they are with their kind of their scouting team over there, I, I do wonder if he's the will be their main target. Though I'm sure there will be many other teams interested in him too because his stuff is nasty. I don't know if you watched those videos of him yeah. pitching over there. Oh, yeah, I've, that's, I've that's seen good stuff. I saw Milliken tweets him out all the t- or tweeted one out last week. I'm yeah. like, whoa, yeah, this yeah. this stuff is absolutely electric. So we'll yeah. we'll see about that. I do. I will say this about the Red Sox: like it's time to this off season be the Red Sox. Yep. Outbid whoever's got like you have a clear need. You feel yep. pretty good about the rest of the team. You got a clear need. Go get yourself a front end starter. And I think the Red Sox, I think they'll do it. I think now High Bloom will look at this and say, I'm at a place where I feel really comfortable with the farm system and yep. I feel really good about my major league team. This is when I go out and spend. I think they'll do it. All right. So, hey, before I let you go, I got to ask you about two prospects. The first one is the first round pick from this year, Kyle Teal, the catcher out of Virginia. So, what have you seen so far? Because I know. People that like prospects, like Red Sox fans, I'm saying the like prospects are so <laughs> excited about this guy. Like he's all over Twitter already. Yeah, it's it's been exciting. I mean, and I, I think the first thing that has really stood out with what they were comfortable enough to just push him straight to Greenville. They have not done that in years with a prospect um, to basically just skip over low A with a college guy. And I love it. I, I like I, I think we talked about it last time. The low minors is really down right now. Um, low A is not playing like it did even earlier this season or in past years. It's playing more like kind of a short season level, especially with the level of talent there, because all the good guys have been promoted out of it anyway. So I think that I would just get him to double A as quickly as possible. And for me, that's get him to Greenville this year and then start him in Portland next year, because there's just not a lot for him to learn. And the low minors wow. are seeing that like he is all fields approach at the plate. He's really exciting because he's one of those guys who every hack, like the helmet almost falls off, um, which I just think is hilarious. Like he's he's just going out there and he's just taking rips and but it's controlled like, you know, he's he's only got thir- uh, 35 or excuse me, 34 plate appearances this year. He's eight games, but five walks, five strikeouts, makes a ton of contact. He hits the ball hard to all fields. And then I think the most impressive thing is behind the plate. He's been pretty good. I mean, there were some kind of mixed reports coming out of his college. Some guys liked him. Some guys were a little concerned that maybe he was a little rougher behind the edges behind the plate. But from what I've watched on video and then talking to some people who've seen him live, like his pop times have been above average. He's thrown out runners. Um, and then his receiving has been a little better than expected. He's a really athletic catcher. And sometimes it can take those guys a little bit of refinement to c- kind of get, you know, the more, the more details about catching, you know, what things like glove position, where, how you set up in order to like get the best view for the ump um, or how you receive the ball in order to, you know, help the pitcher out the most things like that just a lot of little things behind um that are very small but it's 
they matter. And I, I think that he's done a really good job with that stuff so far. And um, yeah, I, I, I've been, been getting really good reports and been very impressed with what I've seen in a video. And I'm looking forward to seeing him live in a couple of weeks, hopefully. Awesome. I'm excited about him. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. This, is, this is a good thing. The Red Sox continue yes. to strengthen that farm system. Oh, so yes. the other guy is Shane Drohan, who, what do you have? 10 strikeouts the other day. Yep. Six shutout and, innings. And he's a guy that had been struggling, like, right? He hadn't been pitching as well. So what's been different for him lately that has been helped him become more effective here? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I actually saw his previous start and it was like three and a third innings, five walks, five hits, kind of just what he, this, this rough stretch he's been in. And I think he kind of got back to basics in the la in this last start. Um, he threw a few fastballs, which his fastball doesn't have a lot of margin for error because it's, you know, even with the additional velocity of the season, it's still, you know, 92, 93, maybe up to 94. So he's not going to go in there and, you know, blow the fastball by hitters like Chris Sale, Kenner in his prime, guys like that. So he's got to be on with his command. And one way, if your fastball, you know, you don't have you don't have a given outing or even when you do minimize usage of it is go to your secondary pitches more. And that's what he did. He, he went more to his changeup, which is his best pitch. Got, I think, five, six whiffs in that outing on it. And he threw more of uh, the slider cutter kind of it's two pitches, but stack calls it one. Um, but he was more successful with that. And, and when I saw him, he just had no feel for a slider, especially I, he didn't throw a single one for a strike out of, I think it was like the nine or 10 that he threw. Whereas in this outing, he was able to land both of them in the zone. He got a couple whiffs on each of them. And so, you know, when you have those improved secondary pitches, your fastball is going to look better. And I think that was just the biggest thing was just having better feel for a secondary pitches, being able to land everything in the zone. And then, um, just, yeah, just going out there and being consistent. And I think that's the next step for him is just can he carry this over to the next start? Because we've seen it in flashes in AAA and AA was consistent. It was, you know, five, six starts at the beginning of the year, dominated. Every one of them got the promotion. AAA is obviously a different animal. Hitters are a lot better there. He's at, he's, you know, taking his lumps. The ERA is pretty high right now, but this is something you can build upon. And uh, hopefully with the changes he made in this outing with kind of the pitch mix, you know, dropping that fastball, a usage below 40%, increasing secondary pitches. There's something that he can carry over and see, that, hey, this worked in this start. Let's keep trying this and see what happens. And, he, you know, that would be huge for the Red Sox because they do need to develop another homegrown starter at some point, especially with the eye towards next year when you're looking. They need a depth guy there. And if he can develop into that, that will pretty much free you up too to, you know, Whitlock, hey, maybe you go to the bullpen now. We're not going to have you as the sixth starter. Cutter Crawford, same thing. So if he can show himself to be true yeah. MLB depth next year, that's really important for kind of roster construction, especially going into the season. Yeah, that'd be major. That'd be major if they get him in the rotation contributing next year. All right, that is Ian Kundal, the director of scouting at SoxProspects.com. Ian, thanks so much for the time. I wish we were talking about a better series, but we're talking about some good prospects here, and we'll see if the Red Sox can chase down the Blue Jays and the Mariners down the stretch. Definitely. Thanks for having me on. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Ann Kundal, as always. Great to hear about Teal. I'm excited for that guy. Everybody thought that he dropped too far. The Red Sox get him. Kind of reminds you of, like, not to the same extent, but the Christian Gonzalez thing, where it's like, how did he drop to 17? Kyle Teal has that same sort of vibe, so that's a good thing going forward. Made me feel better after a difficult series 
for the Red Sox. Oh, I do want to get to this real quickly before we go is, so the Celtics schedule got announced on Thursday. You have this in-season tournament, which I kind of alluded to this with Ian. I know a lot of people around the NBA are excited about this. I'm not as excited. And I do understand, like, you got to give it time to build up and all that. And it did feel like in the WNBA, they were super excited about it. Like, the Liberty said that was one of their goals this season. So maybe that'll turn out to be the case in the NBA. I'm just like, it's just weird adjusting to this situation to, in the middle of a season, there's going to be a tournament. So they're basically in this bracket where it's with the Nets, the Raptors, the Magic, and the Bulls. So they'll play on November 10th, the Nets, and then on November 17th, that's a Friday as well, the Raptors, the Magic on the 24th, and then they play the Bulls on the 28th. So they should win the group, although the Magic do love to beat the Celtics. We experienced that last year. And then after that, the quarterfinals are on December 4th or 5th, and then the semifinals are in Vegas on December 7th or the 9th, and honestly, or December 7th and I think the finals is on the 9th. I honestly rather am not playing that just because... And I know the guys will be excited for all this and there's more money involved and everything, but they've played a lot of games over the past couple of years. And then they're going to go to Vegas to play games like I'd rather them not win that. And I know like you're not supposed to say that as a fan of the team. I just that I rather them not be in that final four. Okay, I'm more concerned about the other final four that, you know, actually fucking means something. But just some highlights from the schedule real quickly. You open up the season at the Knicks. Okay, interesting matchup because you go to New York, play at MSG. Here's the big one. And we kind of knew about this already, but Miami at home, Friday, October 27th. I have to be there for the opener. I have to see how they respond to what happened last year. So excited about that one. And how about Christmas is awesome. Christmas is at the Lakers, the 5 p.m. window. That is awesome. I love that. Now, that's a difficult part of the, the Celtic schedule. Tuesday, before that, you play Golden State. Wednesday, you play Sacramento. And then Saturday, you play the Clippers. And then on Christmas, you play the Lakers. Like, that's a huge road trip that ends with the Lakers. But I cannot wait for that. Ime comes to town on January 13th. That's a Saturday night game. So place will be bumping. I got to be in attendance for that one. I'm looking forward to that. And a nice little stretch here. January 27th, Wembenyana, you play on a Wednesday. And then you play the defending champs at home, Jokic and company, on the 19th. I got to go to both those games. I went to the game last year when the Nuggets came. That was awesome. I love watching Jokic in person. So that's a nice little stretch there too. And then smart comes back on February the 4th. So those are kind of the highlights of the schedule to me. I can't get like super excited about the NBA right now. Like they released their schedule right now. I'm getting ready for the Patriots. I'm recapping the Red Sox national series, but it was nice to sort of look at the Celtics schedule. I'll be more excited when we get closer to the season, but those are the highlights for me. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 
1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text hope